Chapter Two of Just Patty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Laurel Anderson. Just Patty, by Jean Webster. Chapter Two of Just Patty, the Romantic History of Cuthbert St. John. The Dowager had a very sensible theory that boarding school girls should be kept little girls until their school life was over and they stepped out, fresh and eager and spontaneous, to greet the grown up world. St. Ursula's was a cloister in fact as in name. The masculine half of the human species was not supposed to count. Sometimes a new girl was inclined to turn up her nose at the youthful pastimes that contented her companions, but in the end she would be drawn irresistibly into the current. She would learn to jump rope and roll hoops, to participate in paper chases cross country, to skate and coast and play hockey on winter afternoons, to enjoy molasses candy pulls and popcorn around the big open fire on Saturday nights, or impromptu masquerades when the school raided the trunks in the attic for costumes. After a few weeks' time, the most spoiled little worldling lost her consciousness of calls outside of bounds, and surrendered to the spirit of the youthful sisterhood. But the girls in their teens answer readily to the call of romance, and occasionally, in the twilight hour between afternoon study and the dressing bell, as they gathered in the window seat with faces to the western sky, the talk would turn to the future, particularly when Rosalie Patton was of the group. Pretty, dainty, inconsequential little Rosalie was preeminently fashioned for romance. It clung to her golden hair and looked from her eyes. She might be extremely hazy as to the difference between participles and supines, she might hesitate on her definition of a parallelopiped, but when the subject under discussion was one of sentiment she spoke with conviction, for hers was no mere theoretical knowledge, it was gained by personal experience, Rosalie had been proposed to. She confided the details to her most intimate friends, and they confided them to their most intimate friends, until finally the whole school knew the entire romantic history. Rosalie's preeminence in the field of sentiment was held entirely fitting. Priscilla might excel in basketball, Connie Wilder in dramatics, Karen Hersey in geometry, and Patty Wyatt in, well, in impudence and audacity, but Rosalie was the recognized authority in matters of the heart, and until May Mertel Van Arsdale came, nobody thought of questioning her position. May Mertel spent an uncomfortable month shaking into place in the school life. The point in which she was accustomed to excel was clothes, but when she and her four trunks arrived she found to her disgust that clothes were not useful at St. Ursula's. The school uniform reduced all to a dead level in the matter of fashion. There was another field, however, in which she might hope for supremacy. Her own sentimental history was vivid compared to the colorless lives of most, and she proceeded to assert her claims. One Saturday evening in October, half a dozen girls were gathered in Rosalie's room, on piled-up sofa cushions, with the gas turned low, and the light of the hunter's moon streaming through the window. They had been singing softly in a minor key, but gradually the singing turned to talk. The talk, in accordance with the moonlight and flying clouds, was in a sentimental vein, and it ended, naturally, with Rosalie's great experience. Between maidenly hesitations and many promptings, she retold the story. The new girls had never heard it, and to the old girls it was always new. The stage setting had been perfect, a moonlit beach, and lapping waves and rustling pine trees. When Rosalie chanced to omit any detail, her hearers, already familiar with the story, eagerly supplied it. 
"'And he held your hand all the time he was talking,' Priscilla prompted. "'Oh, Rosalie, did he?' in a shocked chorus from the newcomers. "'Yes, he just sort of took hold of it and forgot to let go, and I didn't like to remind him.' "'What did he say?' "'He said he couldn't live without me.' "'And what did you say?' "'I said I was awfully sorry, but he'd have to.' "'And then what happened?' "'Nothing happened,' she was obliged to confess. "'I suppose something might have happened if I had accepted him, but you see I didn't.' "'But you were very young at the time,' suggested Evelina Smith. "'Are you sure you knew your own mind?' Rosalie nodded with an air of melancholy regret. "'Yes, I knew I couldn't ever love him, because he—well, he had an awfully funny nose. It started to point in one direction, and then changed its mind and pointed in the other.' Her hearers would have preferred that she had omitted this detail, but Rosalie was literal-minded and lacked the storyteller's instinct for suppression. "'He asked if there wasn't any hope that I would change,' she added pensively. "'I told him that I could never love him enough to marry him, but that I would always respect him.' "'And then what did he say?' "'He said he wouldn't commit suicide.' A profound hush followed, while Rosalie gazed at the moon and the others gazed at Rosalie. With her gleaming hair and violet eyes, she was entirely their ideal of a storybook heroine. They did not think of envying her. They merely wondered and admired. She was crowned by natural right, queen of romance. May Van Arsdale, who had listened in silence to the recital, was the first to break the spell. She rose, fluffed up her hair, straightened her blouse, and politely suppressed a yawn. "'Nonsense, Rosalie. You're a silly little goose to make such a fuss over nothing.' "'Good night, children. I am going to bed now.' She sauntered toward the door, but paused on the threshold to drop the casual statement. "'I've been proposed to three times.' A shocked gasp arose from the circle at this lay's majesty. The disdainful condescension of a new girl was more than they could brook. "'She's a horrid old thing, and I don't believe a word she says,' Priscilla declared stoutly, as she kissed poor crushed little Rosalie good night. This slight contretemps marked the beginning of strained relations. May Mortel gathered her own adherents, and Rosalie's special coterie of friends rallied to the standard of their queen. They intimated to May's followers that the quality of the romance was quite different in the two cases. May might be the heroine of any number of commonplace flirtations, but Rosalie was the victim of a grand passion. She was marked with an indelible scar that she would carry to the grave. In the heat of their allegiance they overlooked the crookedness of the hero's nose, and the avowed fact that Rosalie's own affections had not been engaged. But May's trump card had been withheld. Whispers presently spread about under the seal of confidence. She was hopelessly in love. It was not a matter of the past vacation, but of the burning present. Her roommate wakened in the night to hear her sobbing to herself. She had no appetite. Her whole table could testify to that. In the middle of dessert, even on ice-cream nights, she would forget to eat, and with her spoon half-raised would sit staring into space. When reminded that she was at the table, she would start guiltily and hastily bolt the rest of the meal. Her enemies unkindly commented upon the fact that she always came to before the end, so she got as much as anybody else. The English classes at St. Ursula's were weekly drilled in the old-fashioned art of letter-writing. The girls wrote letters home, minutely descriptive of school life. They addressed imaginary girlfriends and grandmothers and college brothers and baby sisters. They were learning the great secret of literary forcefulness, to suit their style to their audience.
Ultimately, they arrived at the point of thanking imaginary young men for imaginary flowers. May listened to the somewhat stilted phraseology of these polite and proper notes with a supercilious smile. The class, covertly regarding her, thrilled anew. Gradually the details of the romance spread abroad. The man was English, May had met him on the steamer, and some day when his elder brother died, the brother was suffering from an incurable malady that would carry him off in a few years, he would come into the title, though just what the title was May had not specifically stated. But in any case, her father was a staunch American, he hated the English and he hated titles. No daughter of his should ever marry a foreigner. If she did, she would never receive a dollar from him. However, neither May nor Cuthbert cared about the money. Cuthbert had plenty of his own. His name was Cuthbert St. John, pronounced Sinjin. He had four names in all, but those were the two he used most. He was in England now, having been summoned by cable, owing to the critical condition of his brother's health. But the crisis was past, and Cuthbert would soon be returning. Then May closed her lips in a straight line and stared defiantly into space. Her father should see. Before the throbbing reality of this romance, Rosalie's poor little history paled into nothing. Then the plot began to thicken. Studying the lists of incoming steamers, May announced to her roommate that he had landed. He had given his word to her father not to write, but she knew that in some way she should hear. And sure enough, the following morning brought a nameless bunch of violets. There had been doubters before, but at this tangible proof of devotion skepticism crumbled. May wore her violets to church on Sunday. The school mixed its responses in a shocking fashion. Nobody pretended to follow the service. All eyes were fixed on May's upturned face and far-off smile. Patty Wyatt pointed out that May had taken special pains to seat herself in the light of a stained-glass window, and that occasionally the rapt eyes scanned the faces of her companions, to make sure that the effect was reaching across the footlights. But Patty's insinuation was indignantly repudiated by the school. May was at last triumphantly secure in the role of leading lady. Poor insipid Rosalie no longer had a speaking part. The affair ran on for several weeks, gathering momentum as it moved. In the European travel class that met on Monday nights, English country seats was the subject of one of the talks, illustrated by the stereopticon. As a stately terraced mansion with deer cropping grass in the foreground was thrown upon the screen, May Mertel suddenly grew faint. She vouchsafed no reason to the housekeeper, who came with hot water bottles and cologne, but later she whispered to her roommate that that was the house where he was born. Violets continued to arrive each Saturday, and May became more and more distrait. The annual basketball game with Highland Hall, a nearby school for girls, was imminent. St. Ursula's had been beaten the year before. It would mean everlasting disgrace if defeat met them a second time, for Highland Hall was a third their size. The captain harangued and scolded an apathetic team. "'It's May Mertel and her beastly violets,' she grumbled disgustedly to Patty. "'She's taken all the fight out of them.' The teachers, meanwhile, were uneasily aware that the atmosphere was overcharged. The girls stood about in groups, thrilling visibly when May Mertel passed by. There was a moonlight atmosphere about the school that was not conducive to high marks in Latin prose composition. The matter finally became the subject of an anxious faculty meeting. There was no actual data at hand, it was all surmise, but the source of the trouble was evident. The school had been swept before by a wave of sentiment, it was as catching as the measles. 
the dowager was inclined to think that the simplest method of clearing the atmosphere would be to pack may mertel and her four trunks back to the paternal fireside and let her foolish mother deal with the case miss lord was characteristically bent upon fighting it out she would stop the nonsense by force mademoiselle who was inclined to sentiment feared that the poor child was really suffering she thought sympathy intact but miss sally's bluff common sense won the day if the sanity of st ursula's demanded it may mertel must go but she thought by the use of a little diplomacy both st ursula's sanity and may mertel might be preserved leave the matter to her she would use her own methods miss sally was the dowager's daughter she managed the practical end of the establishment provided for the table ruled the servants and ran off with the utmost ease the two hundred acres of the school farm between the details of horseshoeing and haying and butter-making she lent her abilities wherever they were needed she never taught but she disciplined the school was noted for unusual punishments and most of them originated in miss sally's brain her title of dragonette was bestowed in respectful admiration of her mental qualities the next day was Tuesday, Miss Sally's regular time for inspecting the farm. As she came downstairs after luncheon, drawing on her driving gloves, she just escaped, stepping on Connie Wilder and Patty Wyatt, who, flat on their stomachs, were trying to poke out a golf ball from under the hat rack. "'Hello, girls,' was her cheerful greeting. "'Wouldn't you like a little drive to the farm? Run and tell Miss Wadsworth that you are excused from afternoon study. You may stay away from current events this evening and make it up.' The two scrambled into hats and coats in excited delight. A visit to Round Hill Farm with Miss Sally was the greatest good that St. Ursula's had to offer. For Miss Sally, out of bounds, was the funniest, most companionable person in the world. After an exhilarating five-mile drive through a brown and yellow October landscape, they spent a couple of hours romping over the farm, had milk and ginger cookies in Mrs. Spence's kitchen, and started back, wedged in between cabbages and eggs and butter. They chatted gaily on a dozen different themes—the Thanksgiving masquerade, a possible play, the coming game with Highland Hall, and the lamentable new rule that made them read the editorials in the daily papers. Finally, when conversation flagged for a moment, Miss Sally dropped the casual inquiry. "'By the way, girls, what has got into May Van Orsdale? She droops about in corners and looks as dismal as a molting chicken.' Patty and Connie exchanged a glance. "'Of course,' Miss Sally continued cheerfully, "'it's perfectly evident what the trouble is. "'I haven't been connected with a boarding-school for ten years for nothing. "'The little idiot is posing as the object of an unhappy affection. "'You know that I never fail tail-bearing. "'But, just as a matter of curiosity, "'is it the young man who passes the plate in church, "'or the one who sells ribbon in Martian Elkins?' "'Neither,' Patty grinned. "'It's an English nobleman.' "'What?' Miss Sally stared. "'And May's father hates English noblemen,' Connie explained, "'and has forbidden him ever to see her again.' "'Her heart is broken,' said Patty sadly. "'She's going into a decline.' "'And the violets?' inquired Miss Sally. "'He promised not to send her any letters, but violets weren't mentioned.' Hm, I see,' said Miss Sally. "'And after a moment of thought, "'Girls, I'm going to leave this matter in your hands. "'I want it stopped.' "'In our hands?' The school can't be stirred up any longer, but the matter's too silly to warrant the teachers taking any notice of it. This is a thing that ought to be regulated by public opinion. Suppose you see what you can do. I will appoint you a committee to bring the school back to a solid basis of common sense. I know that I can trust you not to talk. I don't exactly see what we can do, said Patty dubiously. 
"'You are not usually without resourcefulness,' Miss Sally returned with a flickering smile. "'You may have a carte blanche to choose your own methods.' "'And may we tell Priscilla?' Connie asked. "'We must tell her, because we three hunt together?' Miss Sally nodded. "'Tell Priscilla, and let it stop at that.' The next afternoon, when Martin drove into the village to accomplish the daily errands, he dropped Patty and Priscilla at the florist's, empowered by the school to purchase flowers for the rector's wife and new baby. They turned inside, their minds entirely occupied with the rival merits of red and white roses. They ordered their flowers, inscribed the card, and then waited aimlessly till Martin should return to pick them up. Passing down the counter, they came upon a bill sticker, the topmost item being violets every Saturday to Miss May Van Arsdale, St. Ursula's School. They stopped and stared for a thoughtful moment. The florist followed their gaze. "'Do you happen to know the young lady who ordered them violets?' he inquired. "'She didn't leave any name, and I'd like to know if she wants me to keep on sending them. She only paid up to the first, and then the price is going up.' "'No, I don't know who it was,' said Patty, with well-assumed indifference. "'What did she look like?' "'She—she she had on a blue coat,' he suggested. As all sixty-four of the St. Ursula girls wore blue coats, his description was not helpful.' Oh, Patty prompted, was she quite tall with a lot of yellow hair, and that's her. He recognized the type with some assurance. It's May herself, Priscilla whispered excitedly. Patty nodded and commanded silence. We'll tell her, she promised. And by the way, she added to Priscilla, I think it would be nice for us to send some flowers to May from er, our secret society. But I'm afraid their treasury is pretty low just now. They'll have to be cheaper than violets. "'What are your cheapest flowers?' she inquired of the man. "'There's a kind of small sunflower that some people likes for decorations. "'Cut and come again, they're called. "'I can give you a good-sized bunch for fifty cents. "'They make quite a show. "'Just the thing. "'Send a bunch of sunflowers to Miss Van Arsdale with this card.' "'Patty drew a blank card toward her, "'and in an upright backhand traced the inscription, "'Your disconsolate C. St. J.' "'She sealed it in an envelope, "'then regarded the florist sternly.' "'Are you a mason?' she asked, her eye on the crescent in his buttonhole. "'Yes,' he acknowledged. "'Then you understand the nature of an oath of secrecy. "'You are not to divulge to anyone the sender of these flowers. "'The tall young lady with the yellow hair will come in here "'and try to make you tell who sent them. "'You are not to remember. "'It may even have been a man. "'You don't know anything about it. "'This secret society at St. Ursula's "'is so very much more secret than the Masonic Society "'that it is even a secret that it exists. "'Do you understand?' "'I—' "'Yes, ma'am,' he grinned. "'If it becomes known,' she added darkly, "'I shall not be responsible for your life.' "'She and Priscilla each contributed a quarter for the flowers.' "'It's going to be expensive,' Patty sighed. "'I think we'll have to ask Miss Sally for an extra allowance while this committee is in session.' May was in her room, surrounded by an assemblage of her special followers when the flowers arrived. She received the box in some bewilderment. Oh, "'He's sending flowers on Wednesdays as well as Saturdays,' her roommate cried. "'He must be getting desperate.' May opened the box amid an excited hush. "'How perfectly lovely!' they cried in chorus, though with a slightly perfunctory undertone. They would have preferred crimson roses. May regarded the offering for a moment of stupefied amazement. She had been pretending so long that by now she almost believed in Cuthbert herself. The circle was waiting, and she rallied her powers to meet this unexpected crisis. 
"'I wonder what sunflowers mean,' she asked softly. "'They must convey some message. "'Does anybody know the language of flowers?' "'Nobody did know the language of flowers, "'but they were relieved at the suggestion.' "'Here's a card!' Evelina Smith plucked it from among the bristling leaves. May made a motion to examine it in private, but she had been so generous with her confidences heretofore that she was not allowed to withdraw them at this interesting point. They leaned over her shoulder and read it aloud. "'Your disconsolate C. St. J. Oh, May, think how he must be suffering! Poor man! He simply couldn't remain silent any longer!' "'He's the soul of honor," said May. "'He wouldn't write a real letter because he promised not to, but I suppose a little message like this—' Patty Wyatt, passing the door, sauntered in. The card was exhibited in spite of a feeble protest from May. "'That handwriting shows a lot of character,' Patty commented. This was considered a concession, for Patty, from the first, had held aloof from the cult of Cuthbert St. John. She was Rosalie's friend.' The days that followed were filled with bewildering experiences for May Mertel. Having accepted the first installment of sunflowers, she could not well refuse the second. Once having committed herself, she was lost. Candy and books followed the flowers in horrifying profusion. The candy was of an inexpensive variety. Patty had discovered the ten-cent store, the, but the boxes that contained it made up in decorativeness what the candy lacked. They were sprinkled with cupids and roses in vivid profusion. A message in the same back hand accompanied each gift, signed sometimes with initials, and sometimes with a simple birdie. Parcels had never before been delivered with such unsuspicious promptitude. Miss Sally was the one through whose hands they went. She glanced at the outside, scrawled a deliver, and the maid would choose the most embarrassing moments to comply, always when May Mertel was surrounded by an audience. May's Englishman, from an object of sentiment, in a few days' time became the joke of the school. His taste in literature was as impossible as his taste in candy. He ran to titles which are supposed to be the special prerogative of the kitchen. Loved and Lost, A Born Coquette, Thorns Among the Orange Blossoms. Poor May repudiated them, but to no avail. The school had accepted Cuthbert, and was bent upon eliciting all the entertainment possible from his British vagaries. May's life became one long dread of seeing the maid appear with a parcel. The last straw was the arrival of a complete edition, in paper, of Marie Corelli. He, "'He never sent them,' she sobbed. "'Somebody's just trying to be funny.' "'You mustn't mind, May, because they aren't just the sort that an American man would choose,' Patty offered comfort. "'You know that Englishmen have queer tastes, particularly in books. Everybody reads Marie Corelli over there.' The next Saturday, a party of girls was taken to the city for shopping in the matinee. Among other errands, the art class visited a photograph dealer's to purchase some early Italian masters. Patty's interest in Giotto and his kind was not very keen, and she sauntered off on a tour of inspection. She happened upon a pile of actors and actresses, and her eye brightened as she singled out a large photograph of an unfamiliar leading man, with curling moustache and dimpled chin and large appealing eyes. He was dressed in hunting costume and conspicuously displayed a crop. The picture was the last word in twentieth-century romance, and most perfect touch of all it bore a London mark. Patty unobtrusively deflected the rest of the committee from a consideration of Fra Angelico, and the three heads bent delightedly over the find. "'It's perfect,' Connie sighed, but it costs a dollar and fifty cents.' "'We'll have to go without soda-water forever,' said Priscilla. "'It is expensive,' Patty agreed, but—' 
as she re-studied the liquid, appealing eyes, I really think it's worth it. They each contributed fifty cents, and the picture was theirs. Patty wrote across the front, in the bold backhand that May had come to hate, a tender message in French, and signed the full name Cuthbert Sinjin. She had it wrapped in a plain envelope, and requested the somewhat wondering clerk to mail it the following Wednesday morning, as it was an anniversary present and must not arrive before the day. The picture came on the five o'clock delivery, and was handed to May as the girls trooped out from afternoon study. She received it in sulky silence, and retired to her room. Half a dozen of her dearest friends followed at her heels. May had worked hard to gain a following, and now it couldn't be shaken off. "'Open it, May, quick! What do you suppose it is? It can't be flowers or candy. He must be starting something new.' "'I don't care what it is!' May viciously tossed the parcel into the waste-basket. Irene McCullough fished it out and cut the string. "'Oh, May, it's his photograph!' she squealed. "'And he's perfectly beautiful! "'Did you ever see such eyes? "'Does he curl his mustache, or is it natural? "'Why didn't you tell us he had a dimple in his chin? "'Does he always wear those clothes?' "'May was divided between curiosity and anger. "'She snatched the photograph away, "'cast one glance at the languishing brown eyes, "'and tumbled it face downward into a bureau drawer.' "'Don't ever mention his name to me again,' she commanded, as, with compressed lips, she commenced brushing her hair for dinner. On the next Friday afternoon, shopping day in the village, Patty and Connie and Priscilla dropped in at the florist's to pay a bill. Two bunches of sunflowers, one dollar,' the man had just announced in ringing tones from the rear of the store, when a step sounded behind them, and they faced about to find May Martell Van Arsdale bent on a similar errand. "'Oh!' said May fiercely. "'I might have known it was you three. She stared for a moment in silence. Then she dropped into a rustic seat and buried her head on the counter. She had shed so many tears of late that they flowed automatically. "'I suppose,' she sobbed, "'you'll tell the whole school, and everybody will laugh, and—and—' and... The three regarded her with unbending mien. They were not to be moved by a few tears." "'You said that Rosalie was a silly little goose to make such a fuss over nothing,' Priscilla reminded her. "'And at least he was a live man,' said Patty, even if he did have a crooked nose. "'Do you still think she was a silly goose?' Connie inquired. "'No.' "'Don't you think you've been a great deal more silly?' "'Yes.' "'And will you apologize to Rosalie?' "'No.' "'It will make quite a funny story,' Patty ruminated, the way we'll tell it.' "'I think you're perfectly horrid!' "'Will you apologize to Rosalie?' Priscilla asked again. "'Yes, if you'll promise not to tell.' "'We'll promise on one condition. You're to break your engagement to Cuthbert St. John and never refer to it again.' Cuthbert sailed for England on the Oceanic the following Thursday. St. Ursula's plunged into a fever of basketball, and the atmosphere became bracingly free of romance." End of chapter 2. Recording by Laurel Anderson, Sanford, Florida.